Amen. Amen. And many thanks to the worship team today and give thanks for their love for for bringing us to the to the courts of the king. Let's give thanks to the Lord. It's okay to clap for people who serve well. We love it. And uh, I'm going to ask you, just before our kids go to their classes, we're going to be doing a reading in a fairly obscure part of the Old Testament. So I'm going to give you a page number again. It's, fav- it's page number 560. And this is the ninth chapter of the book of Nehemiah. And I'd like to have our boys and girls to be able to be a part of the reading time and and uh, the word of God in our mouths, that even when we read a section maybe that we don't fully understand, and of course that happens to all of us, doesn't it? If I asked you to open to Ezekiel chapter uh, 38, I think you'd all be going, okay, I don't really understand this, but I'm reading it. Now, I want you to, I want you to go to Nehemiah 9, and it's in the middle of a great prayer. And today, when we look at the covenant-making, covenant-keeping power of God, it is a master key doesn't trivialize this to say it is a power key in the heart of every child of God to know that our Heavenly Father is the one who initiated the covenant by which he promised the coming of the Messiah. And in the Lord Jesus' preparing of disciples for that appointment with Calgatha, he said, no man taketh my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. The shepherd lays his life down for the sheep. All of that is wrapped up in the truth of covenant. And in the middle of Nehemiah chapter 9, on page 560, right in the midst of a prayer that takes the entire chapter, bringing before God the severe danger and plight of the people for whom Nehemiah was rebuilding their foundations, this prayer gives you and me today a model for both the personal and intercessory. Many times, and I'm going to ask you before we read it, how many of you have been in a spot where you said, I just don't even know how to describe to God what I need. I don't even know how to put it into words. Raise your hand if prayer has puzzled you that way at times. And then, if we expand that today, because again, with our friends with um, Facebook Live, and we're doing a trial run with YouTube today, our first time to try to go live YouTube, and we're going to see how that works out, hope it works out well, and We'll get the bugs worked out on that so it can be more available. But in your joining us in this, remember today that prayer for all of those in Ukraine and across the border of Poland and across Russia, as we have shared, knowing many millions upon millions of hearts are torn with severe grief over what's happening across Ukraine and the great need of the more than 2 million refugees that have now crossed into Poland where many ministries and organizations are rallying to support and care for them. But we know that the great danger, we know we've, we're seeing the horrific stories of uh, a, a loved one just, just this week, someone tweeting about my mother's been killed and she's on the stairs in her home and I can't even go move the body. What a horrific thing to be going through. So when we're, we're challenged with these things, how do we pray? How do we pray? How do we move into prayer? Nehemiah chapter 9 is a great model for this. I'd like you to start on page 560 at verse 28, where in the middle of Nehemiah's prayer, he's surveying the great things that God had done for his people in the past, and then 
take special note when we get to verse 32. We'll stop in the middle of 32, but take special note of how Nehemiah describes the anguish of what he sees. Nehemiah 9.28, let's read together. But after they had rest, they again did evil before you. Therefore, you left them in the hand of their enemies, so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they returned and cried out to you, you heard from heaven, and many times you delivered them according to your mercies. We're going to repeat that last sentence of verse 28. And many times you delivered them according to your mercies. Verse 29. And testified against them that you might bring them back to your law. Yet they acted proudly and did not heed your commandments, but sinned against your judgments, which if a man does, he shall live by them. And they shrugged their shoulders, stiffened their necks, and would not hear. Yet for many years you had patience with them and testified against them by your spirit in your prophets, Yet they would not listen. Therefore you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great mercy, you did not utterly consume them nor forsake them. For you are God, gracious and merciful. Now therefore our God, the great, the mighty, and awesome God, who keeps covenant and mercy... Do not let all the trouble seem small before you that has come upon us. Now, right in the middle, that 32nd verse, read that last sentence with me aloud. Do not let all the trouble seem small before you that has come upon us. Lord, we want to take this brief time in looking at how you put in the heart of your servant Nehemiah to intercede with reality with authentic confession for what actually had happened in the lives of the beloved ones he knew and those that had gone before. We look at our nation. We can share many parallels with Nehemiah. We can see that this great nation has had incalculable mercies from Almighty God from its very founding, even in the days of the colonies and prior, even to the Mayflower Compact in 1620 and then the founding of this republic, and in all of the ways, through incredible odds, through what appeared at times to be absolute looming catastrophe, you gave, through your mighty mercy, many openings and opportunities and breakthroughs and blessings and miracles of your provision, for which we stand as heirs today. And yet we know we stand in the midst of a distinctly ungrateful country in which deep ingratitude and discontent and even the ripping and the renouncing of those principles that came from your covenant mercies in the lips of many today with very high profiles. So Father... We come like Nehemiah and we say, Lord God, you, you Lord, are the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and mercy with those who fear you to a thousand generations. 
When we know not what to pray for our nation, we will come and say, Lord, in your mercy, bowing before the magnitude of your covenant-keeping promise, we thank you today that we truly can enter into your gates with thanksgiving and into your courts with praise because you've called us to voice the truth of your eternal plan to bring good out of bad circumstances for all those that love you. Now we, we know as we expand this to pray for all of the suffering people and those in great harm's way and those recovering and restoring from the ravages of war in Ukraine, those who are facing ominous circumstances even as we pray. Lord, it's, it's near nighttime in Ukraine now. We ask you to powerfully sweep across that land with your great mercy and covenant-keeping kindness. Bring hope and healing and restoration. Empower those who are ministering to the millions that have fled into Poland and other neighboring countries. Pour your grace and mercy in the hearts of those who are passionately praying and interceding all across. Followers of the Lord Jesus who love you and know that we're facing a tyranny of evil in these invasions. They're praying and we pray and we join with our brothers and sisters in Christ across the entire region. And ask you, Lord God, to bring in this moment a mighty awakening to your truth and your holiness and your plan. And here in America, Lord, raise up a new generation of those who will say, Oh, Lord God, here am I. Here am I. Here am I. Send me in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, our boys and girls are going to go to Explorers and Pathfinders. And we so appreciate uh, these teachers uh, and and. Uh, each of you that are taking a part in this, um, thanks again. You may be seated. And, and for each of you, as, as you take that section that we just read from, we just dipped into it briefly, but I, would, I, I brought that partly to invite you. Those of you that feel this sometimes, the puzzling of prayer, how can I go forward with my prayer? How can I truly um, express to God in a way that I know is authentic? Because he says in 32, Lord, please look out the situation we're in and, and don't think it a small thing. It's, it's, it shows a, a level of authenticity in Nehemiah's prayer. He's being very honest, deep, deep level honesty. And in that honesty, he's recognizing that when we reach the end of our hoarded resources, that great, great song, he giveth more grace, puts it that way. When we reach the end of our hoarded resources, when our store of strength is well gone, we have just begun to tap into the limitless resources of his grace. He giveth more grace when the burdens are greater. He sendeth more strength when the labors increase. To added affliction, he addeth his mercy. To multiplied sorrows, he multiplies peace. His grace has no measure. His love knows no limit. His power has no boundaries known unto men. For out of his riches of kindness in Jesus, he giveth and giveth and giveth again. The hymn writer captured that magnitude of covenant mercy that Nehemiah was appealing to. Turn to another passage in your Bible in in uh, Psalm 27, and look at it also for a moment as another classic example as we move back into this 
message regarding the covenant because I'd like for us to make some connections that I hope you can take with you today. Um, and that is, <laughs> we're, we're looking at how God's mercy works. And a great prayer of Psalm 27 is another one you can take home with you today. Because when we toggle to the New Testament verse here, I hope we can make this connection in a way that really informs and ignites and enlightens the call to prayer. When we pray boldly, believe God, we're not praying in human strength. We're not praying as the great hymn on Christ the solid rock I stand says, my hope is built on nothing less but Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, talking about the human personality. Now think about how vulnerable we all are. How tempted we all are to touch, to trust in that old-fashioned way of describing human personality, the sweetest frame. Sure, there are wonderful people in our lives, and there are wonderful people to trust and to follow and, and to learn from, and yet our trust, he says, is in Christ alone. In Psalm 27, David voiced it this way. I hope you have your Bible there. I'm going to open it in the New International Version. And um, reading from verse 1, David says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Then verse 4 of Psalm 27, One thing I ask from the Lord this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to get the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. He will keep me safe in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of his sacred tent and set me high upon a rock. Now, these are prayers for deliverance. Today, we're going to look at covenant certainty, the certainty, the rock-solid certainty that God gives us in these facts of his covenant kindness. Before we do, I'd like you to read our theme verse for March. And we're going to read this verse every week because this is our focus as we look toward the week's the week of April the 10th, Palm Sunday, April the 15th, Good Friday worship at 7 p.m. here, where we will be sharing in the Lord's table. And I'm praying that we might share and come to the Lord's table on Good Friday, April 15th, for the 7 p.m. service with a new awareness of how the covenant God gave us in Christ delivers us from fear, delivers us from the paralysis of analysis. It delivers us from being mired or stuck or stranded. It is God's grace fully made known. And I'd like to ask you to read this verse every week in March aloud with me. Would you read this together from Titus 2? For the grace of God has been revealed, bringing salvation to all People. This is God's glorious plan that in resurrection morning, when we meet on Easter Sunday, on April 17th, we will celebrate in that full awareness together 
that this wonderful conquest of life in Christ that Justin was leading us in and singing about earlier is a part of, of the magnitude of God's plan in covenant-making power. So when Jesus broke the bread with the disciples in the Last Supper and then gave them the cup of the fruit of the vine, he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. That night culminated the glorious plan that we've now gone back into to look at why it was vital even at the time of Sinai for God to place an anchor of certainty in the very heart of the people that he had mercifully called. So I'm going to ask you now, if you'd open your Bible to Exodus 19, our primary text last week, we go back to this today to think about how this covenant was initiated. I think one of the things that's striking here is that the eternal plan of God may seem overwhelming to us in a way, and of course it is because we're a finite mind, and yet the Bible blesses us time and time again with threads of understanding that when we come to the table of the Lord together, we can hold the elements with new appreciation that what is being represented was an eternal plan that in the power of his resurrection you can partake of. And I think it's notable, if you open to Exodus 19, that the sixth verse, God speaks to Moses not only the instructions of that event, but the fact that this encounter at Sinai would bring certainty to their journey. He said, these are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. These are the words. And then we might say, okay, well, what are these words and why are they, why are they so timeless? And why the emphasis, by the way, in the text of... You now shall speak these words. The spoken word of God is a dynamic truth throughout the Bible that always accompanies a major move of the epoch of God in his purposes. Every point in God's developing of this covenant plan, there is an emphasis on the word that was heard. Now, we could go all the way back to the first chapter of Genesis, of course, to see the principle, and God said, let there be light. The Apostle Paul references that, 2 Corinthians 4, 6, and says, because God spoke, commanded light to shine out of darkness, now in the gospel he shined in our hearts. The apostolic message joins together this truth of God speaking with the proclaiming of the good news of Christ. Now, this, this togetherness or this unity of purpose we see in Abraham's case when Abraham was called out of Ur of the Chaldees and then made that journey following the Lord's call but not knowing where he was headed exactly and with great uh, uncertainty. 
when he arrived in the land and built his altar and then pitched his tent, built his altar, giving his heart to God, and then pitched his tent as a dwelling following or a priority, God's word came to Abram that through him there would be a gift of righteousness. Again, Genesis 15 is echoed in Galatians 3.8 where Paul says, it is by this that God was bringing the gospel to us. The gospel in advance, we might say. The good news in its seed form. How did it come? It came by Abram hearing God's word, believing what he heard, and it was accounted unto him for righteousness. So Genesis 15, 6, Abram believed God, it was accounted unto him for righteousness, becomes a banner over all of the truth of the good news of God. It's still true today that hearing is essential, hearing his word is essential to the birthing of faith and then declaring that word, confessing Jesus as Lord. All of this is there. Well, not only is all of that in, embedded and, and foreshadowed in these great truths, but look what else in Exodus 19.6. Now, the text is on the screen, and I'd like to say it again aloud, because here we see another element of this long-term planning of God in the covenant. And that is, not only that individuals would believe and receive the Lord and his gift of salvation in the future, and that these, these that were the prophetic people, that they would believe God's promise to lead them to the promised land, but also that God was planning to have a particular kind of people. Let's read the text and think about what he was promising. Read it aloud with me. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. If it were just said there, we might say, well, that's a nice analogy for this historical people way out in the middle of the wilderness of the Negev centuries ago. But no, this crystallizes a promise that God had intended when he called Abram out of Ur of the Chaldees, that God had planned when Moses met him at the burning bush. And that is that through his redemptive mercy that he will form a people. And his plan not only continues today, this verse is prophetic of the very redemption that we enjoy, but too many Christians don't seem to understand. Let me explain why I say that, and then we'll do a quick recap from the key points last from last Sunday. The reason I say it is that we even hear in the news today, we even hear in common conversation, people throw around the word redeem in a completely meaningless way. We hear about a politician who maybe made a terrible mistake or their career was crashed by a scandal and the news commentary is often um, speculating about how could this person redeem themselves. Have you heard it? Redeem themselves. What can they do to redeem themselves? The Bible, that's fascinating that that word is the one that is often chosen to be used because it is a direct exact contradiction to what the Bible teaches about redeeming. The Bible says in Psalm 49, there is not one among us who can pay the price necessary for the redeeming of his or her own soul. Left to ourselves, 
We're redeem-less. I'm not sure if that's good grammar, but it works. We're redeem-less. We cannot redeem ourselves, Psalm 49 says. The third chapter of the book of Romans in the New Testament outlines in uh, graphic detail for, for 19 verses the total incapacity of the human being to manufacture anything close to righteousness in his or her heart. I like to put it this way, that your heart is not a righteousness manufacturer. It just doesn't work. And when the Apostle Paul gets to the 19th verse of the third chapter of Romans, he says, so we see, concluding the destructive downward spiral of human sin, that the result that we see is, There is no fear of God before their eyes. There is none righteous, no, not one. And then that 23rd verse, that great famous verse, we all have sinned. And fall short, not just past tense, not just we fell short of the glory of God, but no, we all sin and fall short. We fall way short. We miss it by an astronomical mind. We miss it by light years. We're nowhere near the glory of God. The very next verse of Romans 4 is the redeeming gift of God in Christ. At Sinai, God has anticipated this future plan in a way that is worth visiting and thinking about it. So we looked at it last week in three parts. The wilderness wandering that is repeatedly accented in the text, speaks of a barrenness of soul that visually helps to paint a picture of what I just described from Romans 3, verses 1 to 19. That is, that the human heart is barren, spiritually bankrupt. We are incapable of producing real righteousness. This does not, this truth does not deny the goodness that human beings can do, whether they are of faith or not. That's an important point, because it sometimes confuses people. When they hear there's none righteous, no, not one, they might think, oh, but pastor, you don't know some of the most wonderful people I know. They do great things, and they don't believe in God, or they have no distinctive faith. Well, you see, what we're missing there is their goodness, the goodness that people do, and people do many good things in spite of the fallen condition of our world. That goodness in itself is one of the gracious manifestations of the mercy of God. He uses human beings to do good things, but those good things can never even approach, even get close to, even approximate the magnificent glory of his righteousness. And in fact, sometimes even in the doing of the good, our internal spiritual poisons are also revealed because we may be doing it for our own selfish purposes. But I say, even if not, even the most altruistic, even the most beautiful examples of humanitarian goodness are good because God has created a world where goodness can thrive and flourish in spite of man's sin. But that goodness never approaches, approximates real righteousness. Righteousness itself is such a distinctive quality, such a valuable truth, such an unattainable virtue by human beings, that the glory of knowing God is that fact 
that he can give you a right standing you cannot possess in yourself. So the wilderness wandering shows a barrenness of soul. And at Sinai, if you look back in your text in Exodus chapter 19, please notice that what we see in Exodus 19 is a display at Sinai of the, of the wrath of God in a manner that visually spoke of the distance between human sin and the living God. In your own Bible, look at Exodus 19.7. So Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people and set before them all the words the Lord had commanded him to speak. The people all responded together, we'll do everything the Lord has said. To me, Exodus 19.8 is a classic example of human hubris, human pride, completely misunderstanding its inability. Somebody could jump up in this congregation and say, I'll chart a flight to the moon. And we would all say, you know, you need to have your head examined. Somebody would say, I could play basketball like, uh, like Magic Johnson, and, or I can play golf like uh, Tiger Woods. No, there is, there is a huge gap far greater than those human examples between our capacity to do what God called us to do. So in Exodus 19, the accent is on the gap. The accent is on the fact that at Sinai we meet our inability. If you look now at verse 14 of Exodus 19, we see after Moses had gone down the mountain to the people, he consecrated them and they washed their clothes. And in the 14th verse, excuse me, on the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God. and They stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. This entire account resonates with the magnitude of God's eternal holiness. They met the splendor of the holy God. And when they encountered it, they realized how completely bankrupt they were. But then that third word that we talked about last week that we left on, hesed, is the fascinating part that comes out of this. God was using this dramatic display of power to introduce this wonderful truth of hesed. And as we mentioned, hesed is translated in the Bible in a number of different ways. Probably the most common is the word mercy. The Miles Coverdale 16th century Bible translation in that era of English language coined a word that took on a wonderful literary life of its own and has blessed our lives for over five centuries. And that is the Miles Coverdale translation of the Bible rendered chesed, loving kindness. And there a new word entered the English language. Say it with me, loving kindness. D David says it in Psalm 63, 4. The King James Bible tells it, tells it this way and many other modern translations. 
Thy loving kindness, say it with me, thy loving kindness is better than life. Thy hesed. Now, the reason Miles Coverdale did that was that it is a rich and powerful truth throughout the entire canon of God's revealed word that conveyed his covenant-keeping nature. It appears 120 times in the book of Psalms alone. Hundreds and hundreds of uses of chesed, translated mercy, loving kindness, unfailing love, and other synonyms of that nature. And the entire encounter at Sinai was God's appointment for Moses to give to a people whose destiny was sure to be troubled and torn and tortured. The truth that the chesed of God, the mercy of God, was promising his full gift of salvation. He said it to them, to Moses this way back in Exodus 3. Read aloud with me from uh, the text what God said there from the screen. I have come down to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and spacious land flowing with milk and honey. Notice the on God's word to Moses at the burning bush. I personally will come down. God says. You can't come up to me. The people at Sinai, as the mountain was smoking with fire and the lightning was flashing and the sound of the trumpet blast was so overpoweringly arresting. They said, we cannot go to God. Well, he repeated it again here, you see, in Exodus 19 when it says the Lord will come down upon Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Now we saw that the reason for this is God creating a people who will be a priestly kingdom. It's very fascinating if you think about what this means that God was anchoring in them at Mount Sinai a certainty about the future that was both good for their own soul and their own journey but also foreshadowed what Christ would do in his kingdom. And that little almost uh, illustration of Sinai, the mountain there, has two emblems there, the wind and the fire. Now, God used the storm and the fire at Sinai to set a pattern in place that is repeated when he promises through John the Baptist that when Jesus Christ comes to you, that I will send my wind and my fire. He said the Messiah will come as one who is clearing his threshing floor with a giant fan. And those who would harvest wheat in that rural agricultural and uh, rustic era would have their wheat in the corral where the harvest had come in and the chaff had been separated from the wheat, but the great vat of wheat would be left with chaff nearby. And the, the harvester would use a great fan and blow that chaff out of the way as they carefully separated the wheat. 
Jesus comes, John the Baptist says, as the one whose fan is in his hand, the wind will come and it will blow and it will, he will gather the wheat into his barn. And he then, he said, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So all of this was anticipated and the gospel, the proclamation of the gospel in the book of Acts gives us these great truths to show us the certainty of this covenant. In Acts 13, verse 29, the Bible sums up this wonderful message of the good news of Jesus Christ, inviting each of us to come and partake of a forgiveness that we do not deserve, a righteousness that comes by hearing of faith, and this wind and fire, the the rushing mighty wind of the Holy Spirit blowing through our lives, and the purifying fire of the Holy Spirit's presence doing something in us we could never do for ourselves. It's all summed up in Acts 13, 29 in this reference way back to the covenant. Hear these words. And as concerning the one that he raised up from the dead, the Lord Jesus, now no more to return to corruption, God said in this way, I will give you the sure mercies of David. The sure mercies of David is that expression that speaks of the certainty that God has a covenant plan for you and me. Now, here's what happens. When you embrace the new covenant, when you come to the Lord's table, when you acknowledge Christ himself was the promised one, he's the one that tabernacle was a shadow of. He is the one who fulfills all the types and shadows and the prophecies of the Old Testament. And you partake of a simple emblem, the bread and the cup. You are visually reminding yourself and sharing in communion at a table with brothers and sisters in Christ that links us beyond this congregation to congregations around the world. And they link us to the reality of the sure mercies of God, an anchor you can count on. That in itself is part of the reason why God gives us these visual object lessons, and then fills the Psalter, fills the prayer book, the the song book of old with wonderful examples. As I said, over 120 places in Psalms where the hesed of God, this covenant-keeping mercy, these two are just two examples. Read them with me from the screen, if you would. This is Psalm 5 and Psalm 32. Would you read these with me? But I, by your great mercy, will come into your house. In reverence, I will bow down. And then the one from Psalm 32 below that. Many are the woes of the wicked, but the Lord's chesed surrounds each person who trusts in God. The Lord's loving kindness, the Lord's mercy, the Lord's unfailing love, the Lord's great arms of redemptive power wrap around the child of God who says, I may be surrounded by a generation that glorifies wickedness, but God, I come to your presence, and I know it is all because of the chesed, the eternal covenant plan you put in place in the Lord Jesus, that I can come and receive this unfailing love. Charles Spurgeon, a hundred and... Uh, about 145 years ago, was speaking about this at the London, London Tabernacle Church. And, and, and Spurgeon made this 
observation about what we've just talked about today. That gap between our barrenness and the gift of his righteousness. And Spurgeon said it this way, Not a grain of grace in a hundred tons of human nature. Not one atom of saving matter in yourself. This is why we need the good news. And so there at Sinai in that 19th chapter of Exodus, there were four types, four foreshadowings of this redemptive plan. First, he promised them, if you go back to verse 2 of Exodus 19, he promised them a rescue from peril. And you can think about these very quickly. This is a rescue, a rescue operation from God. Being redeemed is not something a human being can do for themselves. They've got to be rescued from their peril. That's why when Jesus was talking to Nicodemus, he said, Nicodemus, you're not getting it yet. You must be born again. You must be rescued from above to become an heir of this kingdom. Secondly, in Exodus 19, verse 4, go back and look at that one in, in, in your Bible, if you would. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. And that is a vanquished adversary. God, God promised that the fierce adversary of their very existence, the Pharaoh of Egypt, would be utterly vanquished. And that's a type, a foreshadowing, of the complete conquest over sin, death, and hell, and the grave that Christ gave us in his resurrection. Thirdly, he promised El Shaddai, the almighty God, his very nature would be known among them, and it was illustrated by them being carried on eagle's wings. The original Hebrew word for El Shaddai, that name God gave Abraham, I am almighty God, means omnipotent, and it implies a parental as well as an omnipotent provision, a parental care and an omnipotent source. That is El Shaddai, the almighty God, the God who is more than enough, and it results in forth a priestly redeemed people. What it says is we're being redeemed for something that is beyond just the need of the individual. It's one of the things that I love to celebrate about the very nature of our church and what we're called to do. And that is that God says, you will be, he says this corporately to, in that ancient meeting at Sinai, and he repeats it in the first chapter of the book of Revelation, that through Christ's resurrection, you now can be part of this holy kingdom of priests. Now you might say, why would I want to be a part of a kingdom of priests? I, you know, why would I want to be a priest anyway? Well, it's talking about the wholehearted worship dimension of being a follower of Jesus. When you think the word priest, think of yourself, think of it as wholly set apart, wholly set apart, completely set apart, to be one whose worship goes to God without interruption. It is a wholehearted worshiper. And the beauty of it is that his promise for them was that they would be redeemed. Redeemed, how I love to proclaim it, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. When God promised that redemption at the burning bush, he said to Moses, I will redeem them with an outstretched arm and mighty power. 
it always makes me think when I hear that of how the old rugged cross reflects that very dimension of the spreading out of the mighty arms of God. With an outstretched arm and omnipotent power in the hesed, in the covenant-keeping mercy of God, I will redeem. Why? Because we all have sinned and would you say present tense with me? Present tense. Say it with me. Present tense. Fall short of the glory of God being redeemed freely by the grace that comes through Christ Jesus in death, burial, and resurrection. I invite you to pray with me, and if you are here today, we're going to bow our heads for a moment and share in a brief, quiet moment to invite anyone who might think, well, I'm just not sure. I don't know for sure. And this is about covenant certainty today. Yes, there's an anchor. There is an eternal anchor fully embedded in that incredible promise of God for chesed, his covenant mercy, his loving kindness. But it's not a loving kindness that can tolerate or overlook the poisons of the sin nature. It has to cure the sin, which could only be done by those mighty arms of messianic redemption being spread on an old rugged cross. So God makes the offer open, and he says, you could be in this small chapel here in the beautiful rolling hills of Carroll County. You could be in a in a crystal cathedral somewhere with thousands of people. You could be on the side of a mountain. You could be in a valley. You could be in a desert like that one the Israelites were being called out of. You could be on a, on, on a subway train in New York City. You could be on a, on a farm in Kansas. You could be among the, the hurting and harassed and, and, and very fearful hordes of people trying to find shelter in Poland right now. You could be in any not one of a thousand and one places. And the offer of Almighty God through Christ to you would be the same. Grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation. By simply saying, yes, Lord Jesus, I give my heart and life to you. And I know you are the only Redeemer. I bring my soul to your feet. And I ask you to come into my heart and to be my Lord and Savior. Jesus promises his wonderful gift of that wind and fire to every heart. Now, as we pray, I always know this as we pray here at Liberty. We're a small congregation. It can be, if you can feel a little self-conscious maybe about stepping out. So we don't often make that uh, a, a direct invitation. We try to make it clear for you, you can have a personal quiet time of prayer with somebody who cares about you, who will meet with you and open the pages of of scripture and help you know for certainty that you'll never doubt, there will never be another shadow of doubt in your mind that you belong wholly, completely to the Lord Jesus and that you're secure in his kingdom, secure in his love, and that nothing can ever separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So, Make your need known in a moment of 
your desire, and we'll pray with you, and we would love to share that with you. I also ask as we pray, maybe just for a moment more, that each of you would ask the Holy Spirit to empower us and enlighten us to be ready to talk about Jesus. Would you do that? Lord, I just ask today that you would just put in all of our hearts and lives this day how, how beautifully and how gently and how wisely and how the timing that you give us can be so beautiful when we ask you to give us words in season for one we love or even a stranger we've just met to show us how to let our words carry to them the priceless promise that God's love will bring hope and redemption to your soul. In Jesus' name, amen.